which was wrath. And hopefully you're going to see how all these tie together. And hopefully if you're going through the devotional book, you've noticed that each grouping of words have a section to them. And so each section hopefully is going to tie together as well. At least that's the point. And hopefully we can see that as we go through. I want to remind you that next week, Noel Whitlock will be with us for our Equip Seminar. He'll be with us Saturday evening, starting at 6 o'clock. We'll have some refreshments here at the building, get to meet and greet with Noel. And then he'll speak at 7. And then he'll be here with a combined class on Sunday morning here in the auditorium at 9. He'll speak during the worship hour. We'll have lunch together, potluck lunch together. And then he will speak in the afternoon following lunch. And then we won't have services at 5 o'clock. That will take the place of our 5 o'clock service, so make note of that. And hopefully you'll be here for that. Noel does a great job, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. And we have asked him to speak about this one-word series. So everything that he's going to talk about with us during the weekend is going to coincide with our one-word study. I want to ask you some questions as we start this morning. First of all, how many gallons of water are there in all the oceans? You ever thought about that? The answer is actually 3.612 times 10 to the 20th gallons. That's 3.612 times 1 with 21 zeros. Here's another one. How many stars are in the known universe? And the answer is 70 sextillion. That's 7 followed by 22 zeros. And this number was calculated by a team of Australian scientists at the Australian National University. What's the total number of grains of sand on all the beaches in the world? The answer is 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand. Now, I don't know if any of those answers are right. I just made them up. <laughs> because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I could, I could have made up any kind of number. I mean, those are actually numbers. But I could have given you any number. I could have made up any number. And who are you to argue? Right? You wouldn't have known any different anyway. Because the things that we were talking about in those questions are so vast and so immense, you could really say anything there. Because it blows your mind, right? And that is how God's grace is. It is so vast. You can't put a number on it. You can't calculate it. It's so immense that you can't even grasp the magnitude fully of it. Such is the case with God's grace that we're looking at this morning. You could pluck every star from the sky. You could count every grain of sand on the beach. You could take all the waters from the ocean, and God's grace has only just begun. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 18, it reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now you can go back to the sixth chapter of Genesis, and you can read about the worldwide flood and about all the events leading up to that and how the world had become so wicked that God was going to wipe them out and start over. Here in 1 Peter 3 and 20, we see a description, though, of God's grace. You find it also in Genesis chapter 6. It is grace that is long-suffering. 
Noah found favor in the eyes of God. He found grace, if you will, in the eyes of God. He let Noah spend 100 years laboring intensively to build this massive ark so that he could save him and his family. But also during that 100 years, God showed grace upon every soul that was on the earth. You ever thought about that? God allowed every human being that was so wicked on the face of the earth to have an opportunity to turn around, to repent. Because Peter even refers to Noah as being a preacher, a herald of righteousness. So if Noah was preaching in these days, it means that if the people had heard his message and heeded that message and turned around and repented, they could have been saved from their wickedness. Now we know that they didn't, but they at least had that opportunity. And we also see the long-suffering of God's grace. What if God had stepped in after 50 years and said, You know, Noah, I I just can't take it anymore. I'm going to go ahead and destroy the earth now because I just can't handle it any longer. Well, then God's grace wouldn't have been long-suffering. It would have been impatient, right? Because he said he's going to give him 100 years. And so, therefore, God's grace was in effect. You know, we're all sinners. And I I realize that's not anything earth-shattering to you. But we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve to die. However, God has given us the opportunity to be forgiven. Through his amazing gift of grace, sinners can be reconciled to him. And the fact that sinners are not struck dead immediately, the fact that God sent his son to die for sinners, the fact that through Christ's blood, sinners can have atonement, all of these truths are a testament to God's grace. When we sin, we are given the opportunity to be forgiven. And every opportunity is a testament to the grace of God. If you know, as you're sitting here this morning, that you are a sinner separated from God, then you know what this morning is? When you got up this morning and you had breath in your lungs and you had blood pumping through your veins... You know what that was? If you have the opportunity to go to bed tonight and wake up the next morning and go to work and love on your family, love on your kids, you know what that is? The fact that you are here this morning to listen to a a lesson from God's word and to worship with his people, you know what that is? That is a testament to God's grace. And it is an opportunity for you, if you are outside of Christ, to be brought near. You see, God's grace is a gift. And it's not just for those who have accepted the gift. Any person alive on this earth, whether in Christ or out of Christ, is being shown grace. The fact that a sinner is allowed to live another day and have the opportunity to turn their lives around is a testament to God's grace. You think about those folks that were left off the ark when the, when the long-suffering of God finally ran out. And the rains came down and the floodwaters rose. You think about those folks banging on the door of the ark, desperately trying to get in as water filled their lungs. You, you think about 
Noah looking out from the ark and seeing nothing but dead bodies floating on the water. You think about all those folks who had the opportunity to turn their lives around. For a hundred years they had the opportunity and they didn't take advantage of it. Grace ran out. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. You know, this year I've challenged you to read bigger chunks of the Bible. I think one of the big errors we make in Bible study is we, we proof text our way through the Bible or we hunt and peck and we pluck these, these pieces of Scripture out of context and make them stand alone. And so I've challenged you to read bigger chunks. We're going to be reading bigger chunks as we study together on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. And last week we looked at Romans chapter 1 and we looked at Romans chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 3 and a little bit at Romans chapter 5. And I want you to look at verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. And there it says, There are only a few who are righteous or unrighteous. Actually, that's not what it says. It actually says, Only Americans are righteous. Only conservative people are righteous. If you're reading it, you know that that's not an accurate translation. It says, There is none righteous. Not even one. And then you skip on down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all the visitors who are here this morning are thinking, wow, is it this depressing every week? Actually, it's not even going to be that depressing this morning. We're going to get better. Okay, stay with me, all right? Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us without hope. You see, Paul begins Romans 1 by mincing no words and just getting straight to the point. He said, Let, let's talk about God's wrath. Let's just talk about it. I mean, it's the elephant in the room. Let's just get it out there. Let's talk about God's wrath. And then in chapter 2, he builds on this idea and what it means for those who obey the gospel, they are saved from God's wrath. Those who are disobedient to God are storing up wrath for themselves. And notice that he's not talking about the dregs of humanity. He's not talking about the lowest of low. Romans is written to Christians, right? We've been talking about this in, in Bible class on, on, on Wednesday night. We often look at Paul's letters as he's writing to people who need to be baptized or who need to, to do this. No, he's writing to people who've already been baptized, right? He's already writing to people who are Christians. And he's, he's talking here in chapter 3 about the hope that we have. That even though we are sinners, we can have hope. But first he lays it out and he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can imagine his listeners saying, okay, well then what hope do we have? And he says, none. On your own, you don't have any. But there is hope for those who accept the gift of grace that comes from God. Notice Romans 3, 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now look at the verses that immediately follow. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So words like propitiation and justified and justifier, these are all a testament 
to the amazing grace of God. There is hope without, there is no hope, I should say, without grace, but there is hope for sinners to be justified. There is hope for those who are outside of Christ if they accept this gift of grace. That's the invitation. Well, we're not done. Don't pack up. But that's the invitation. That there is hope for those who are outside of Christ. There is hope for those who are not righteous. That the unrighteous can be righteous. And so the question becomes, will you accept this gift of grace? Will you take advantage of the opportunity to have your sins forgiven and to walk in newness of life? And if not, then let me just say this very lovingly. There's no hope. You don't have any hope. And I don't say that to be harsh or rude. I say that because the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God says that. If you choose to remain disobedient, if you choose to live outside the will of God, there is no hope for you. And I would say this also, not to put too fine a point on it or to be unloving in any way, but don't be foolish. I mean... Why would you play Russian roulette with your soul? Why, why, if you know what you should do, why would you not take advantage of the opportunity? God has afforded you the opportunity to receive His grace. So don't blow it. Let me ask you, what do you see when you look at the cross? When you really reflect upon the cross, what do you see? And you might say, well, you see the love of God, you know, that he sent his only begotten son to die a cruel death for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And yes, that is all true. But what do you see? Do you see his wrath? You ever thought about that? Do you see God's wrath when you look at the cross? I mean, we see a sacrifice of love, but do we contemplate why Jesus is hanging there in the first place? You've heard me say this before, but growing up in the Catholic Church, the cross was at the forefront of everything. But one thing that I noticed so often is that cross was very sanitized. And you see that in other religions as well. You see a crucifix, you see Jesus hanging there with a drop of blood here, a drop of blood here, a drop of blood on his feet, maybe a few drops of blood coming down his head from the crown of thorns, and that's it, right? Folks, he was a bloody mess, unrecognizable while hanging on that coarse cross. There was nothing sanitized about it. And in that moment, when you reflect on the cross, you see the wrath of God. Yes, it's a sacrifice of love, but he had to die because a holy God cannot tolerate sin. A holy God cannot be indifferent towards sin. Somebody has to pay. And if it's not you, then somebody has to. That's just how this whole thing works. Look again at Romans chapter 1. We looked at it last week, but let's go there again, starting at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for, for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making a request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, 
so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The letter to the Romans starts out so nice. And those who were hearing it for the first time being read were probably thinking, oh, that, that Paul, he's such a sweetheart. I mean, what a nice guy. But there's more, isn't there? I mean, if you look at verse 18 and following, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." Then you go to Romans chapter 2, and Paul continues as he speaks of those who are storing up wrath for themselves because of their stubbornness and their unrepentant heart. And then Romans chapter 3, he makes it clear that no one is righteous, not even one, that all fall short, all have sinned. So you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what Romans chapter 1 through 3 is. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the context, of course is in reference to the Jews and the law. And Paul is making a point to say that there is no partiality with God. That you Jews who used to rely on your heritage as your salvation can't do that anymore. You're not going to sneak in through the back door. You're not going to be able to get before God, before your maker, and say, I deserve to come in. I'm one of your people. Now, the only access to salvation that anyone has including the jew is through jesus christ and that gift of grace paul is pointing to the cross and he's saying this is why jesus died this is the reason because my wrath had to be satisfied the cross and the blood that was shed upon it appeases the wrath of god you look at the cross and what do you see you see a sacrifice, you see the demonstration of the righteousness of God, but you also see the torture, the humiliation, the pain, and the agony that, that, that show that God doesn't let anyone off the hook. No one's sneaking in through the back door, including his son. Because somebody had to pay. And if it's not you, then it's got to be somebody. And thanks be to God, he sent his only begotten son to pay the debt that we owe. You see, the cross demonstrates the wrath of God being satisfied. An impartial and righteous God, an impartial and righteous God did not even let his son off the hook. But there's more. Again, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at the cross and you see the ugliness of sin being punished by holy God. But you look at it again and what do you see? You see the love of God that satisfied his own requirements for an atonement. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that is grace, isn't it? We talk about grace as a what. No, grace is a who. It's Jesus Christ. And Christ on the cross is the personification of grace. God satisfied his own requirements for an atoning sacrifice. I want you to notice that last part of Romans 3.26. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I don't know if you've ever read that before, but that is absolutely beautiful. That the righteous judge finds us not guilty when we accept his gift of grace. We stand condemned, and yet we have forgiveness. You move over to Romans chapter 5, and it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And so it's not all bad news that Paul's presenting. Chapter 3, he's talking about there's no one righteous, not even one. All fall short of the glory of God. Then you come over to Romans chapter 5, and you look at verses 6 and following, for instance. And this is, I believe, the love chapter. And we always call 1 Corinthians chapter 13 the love chapter. Why not this one? Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Look at the cross again, and what do you see? You see the love of God, don't you? You see that coarse cross. You see a man hanging there with nails piercing his wrists and his feet. And behind all of it, you see the love of God. And if the cross teaches us nothing else, it teaches us two things clearly. Number one, and that is, it was a love that held nothing back. And number two... It is totally undeserved. God didn't say, I love you. He proved it in action. He did something about love by meeting our greatest need. God not only spoke his love for us through his word, but he proved his love for us on the cross. That is amazing for sure. But, I've stated it over and over again, and I always feel an obligation when we talk about grace to point to something else that is very vital for us to understand when it comes to grace. And that is, grace is not some magical pixie dust that's going to be sprinkled over you just because you say you believe in God. Grace obligates. You see, 
Cheap grace is the kind of grace that just says, God forgives me, and I don't have to do anything about it. He just forgives me. You don't earn that grace. There's nothing you can do to merit it. Absolutely nothing. But grace does obligate you. And it obligates you in this way. You must respond. Noah could not prop his feet up and sit back and say, well, in a hundred years I'll be floating. No, he had to do something, didn't he? And what he did did not earn his way on that ark. He had found favor in the eyes of God. But he still had to follow through with the mission. He still had to respond. God extends grace, but we must be willing to accept the favor. Grace can sometimes give people the illusion that God has mellowed out, that he's not as harsh as he used to be. Some people look at the New Testament and they say, oh, well, the angry God, the wrathful God from the Old Testament, all of a sudden took a softer stance towards sin. Because in the Old Testament, we often see people being struck dead where they stand. Over in the New Testament, we don't see that as much, save the case of Ananias and Sapphira. We don't see that as much, and so we have this illusion that God maybe has taken a softer approach to sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. But we see the long-suffering of God's grace, don't we? Let me remind you of what Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26 says. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I want you to notice the phrasing. It doesn't say it used to be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It doesn't say, be thankful you didn't live in the Old Testament, because it was bad then. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And you know who it's terrifying for? Those who store up the wrath of God. Those who choose to live in disobedience, those who refuse to accept the grace. For them, it is a terrifying thing. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can fall into the hands of a living God knowing that we are safe and secure, that He wraps His arms around us, and that we have nothing to fear. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but so many times in the Lord's church, we're afraid of grace. We're afraid to talk too much about grace. We don't want to get too deep into grace because we're so afraid that somebody is going to misread or misunderstand what we're talking about. Because we're so fearful that someone's going to get the impression that by talking too much about grace that we're somehow setting aside obedience. We've got to stop taking our cue from the world around us. Namely, the religious world around us. Just because some in the religious world around us may abuse grace doesn't mean that we can't talk about it. We don't take our cue from the world around us. We take our cue from the Bible. And here's what the Bible says very plainly. By grace, you have been saved through faith. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This should not make us the least bit 
uncomfortable because it comes directly from the Word of God. And by me saying these words doesn't mean that I'm trying to disavow obedience in any way or any of those other things. It simply means that you or I, if we're going to be saved, it's only going to be by grace and how we respond to that gift. We should be world famous for our grace. We should be exuding grace. We should be a people of grace. When people look to us as the church from the world around us, they should be able to say, oh, those people are people of grace. Because everything hinges on God's grace. Everything eternal, everything regarding salvation hinges on grace. And we should be all about grace. We should be the biggest cheerleaders for grace. And tr- instead of trying to minimize it and trying to, you know, we, we always seem to have to follow up grace with something else. You know, we're saved by grace. Yeah, yeah, but don't forget, you got to do something. Let's accept grace for what it is and let's stop taking our cues from the world around us. We do that too much. We minimize the Holy Spirit because of religious error. We can't show a cross because of we're too afraid of being like somebody else. We can't use certain words. Have you noticed that? Can't use certain words like testimony. No, that's, that, that's, that's a religious denominational word. We can't use that word. Folks, we need to be biblical. And there's nothing wrong with being biblical. And there's nothing wrong with calling grace what it is. Instead of minimizing it, let's exude it and let's preach it and let's talk about it and let's show it to the people around us. What if I told you that I'm going to make this pen stand up on this podium? You believe me? I'm going to make this pen stand up on this podium. You ready? Can you see it? Mission accomplished. I told you I could do it. And you're probably thinking, well... But Chris, anybody can do that. I mean, I thought you were going to make it stand up by itself. You ever seen anybody do that? I mean, maybe if it was a flat pin, but I mean, it's hard to make a pin stand up by itself on its point. The only thing that's making the pin stand is, is me holding it, right? The minute I take my hand off of it, it falls. And the same is true with us. The only thing that's holding you up is God's hand. That's the only thing. The fact that you are able to stand at all is a testament to God's grace. And the moment he takes his hand off of you, you fall. The moment that you refuse to let his hand be upon you, you fall. I've already given the invitation. But I want to leave you with this. In the end, all sin is going to be punished. As we talked about last week, that's what a holy God does. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. All sin is going to be punished. Here's the question. Do you want to pay the price? Or do you want Jesus to pay the price? Somebody's going to pay. You want it to be you? Or do you want it to be Christ? Clinton's going to come lead us in a song. 
If we can help you in some way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing. Deeper than the ocean and water.